This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Father, prepare our hearts to receive, open our eyes, open our ears that we may see and understand and hear and respond. Father, be with us as we engage with your word and your spirit will help us to understand. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let me begin with this question is, who will you follow and entrust your life to? Who will you follow and entrust your life to? I'm not talking about uh, who do you like or who is your go-to person if you need some advice or even who you are going to vote uh, when there's election. I'm asking who will you follow and entrust your life and even entrust your death to? Someone that you fully trust and can give up everything to follow. Now, in a light-hearted manner, there are hundreds of movies where I try to search for this kind of topic. It's Titanic, Twilight, Love Actually, you No know, Pursuit of Happiness, even Aladdin, where there's kind of a perfect hero whom the heroine would entrust everything to, such as Aladdin, where he stretched out his hand to Jasmine to jump on board his flying cloth or kind of his flying carpet and say, do you trust me? And she gave that big smile and she jumped on board of it. That is not what um, life in reality is. Because in our less light-hearted history, many men and women have followed and entrusted their life to their leader. People like Hitler, Pol Pot, Stalin and others, which resulted in not just their death, but the death of millions. Who will you follow and entrust your life to? As we, as we come back to our series of the Gospel according to Matthew, the author wants us to know that there is one whom is worth following and entrusting our lives to. The one who claims lordship over humanity, over nature, over the spiritual realm. The one who stepped on the dust of this earth and will judge and claim his will. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So this afternoon, we'll follow the footsteps of Jesus as he begins to reveal who he is, not by his teachings, but by his doings. Now, at the start of Matthew last year when we were at it, the author carefully explains the circumstances of how Jesus was revealed to be the promised one from God. He used the genealogy to show that Jesus was the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the Christ, the anointed one. And then by revelation, he showed how the angel announced that he is to be called Jesus, the one who is the Savior. In fact, he is also called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Then when Jesus began his ministry, he opened his mouth and said, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is near, and then come follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And when Jesus moved on, he started to teach as one with authority, and crowds start to gather around him bigger and bigger and bigger, such that he has to uh, move to a place where he can teach. This is where it recorded in Matthew 5 verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. 
and what he taught at the mountainside recorded in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 became the famously known Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest teaching ever recorded in human histories, where Jesus spoke to his disciple in the midst of the crowd what it means to live as people of kingdom in heaven. And then chapter 7, 28 writes this, the last verse that we have looked at in Matthew last year. And then move on to today's verse, verse 28 of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. So that was where we kind of left off last year, the birth of Jesus, the start of his ministry and his first teachings about the kingdom of heaven. Now, after the mighty words of Jesus from chapter 5 to 7, it comes the mighty works of Jesus from chapter 8 to chapter 9. The crowds who followed Jesus were amazed at his teaching because he comes with authority. And those who continue to follow will again be amazed at his doing because he does work with authority that no one has ever done. So whether by his words or by his works, the disciples and the crowds who are following him, they will have to contend with this one question. And their question is, who exactly is this man? Who exactly is this man? So let's begin with the first three miracles when Jesus came in contact with three very unlikely representatives of humanity. You'll meet three kinds of people, kind of unlikely people to represent us. The first was a leper, the second was a Gentile, the third was a woman. So come to the passage of Matthew 8 with me as I begin with verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. In ancient Jewish world, leprosy is actually one of, one of the, if not the most dreaded disease a person could have. A man with leprosy must never and can never be found in the midst of a crowd. They are meant to be loners, avoided as if they are deaf itself. They live far away from communities, from their loved ones. They don't get any hugs. They are not permitted in religious places or temples meaning they can't even offer sacrifice. They live by themselves as their skin changes color, as the nerves that provide the sensory pain deteriorate, and they start to lose parts of their bodies because they can't feel pressure, they can't feel heat. And as they lose parts of their body as they live, they become the living dead. They are living, but they are as good as dead. The lepers could not even live with the least bit of dignity, because in Leviticus they say that the, lep- the lepers, they are meant to wear kind of tattered clothes. They are meant to cover their mouth as they walk, they say, unclean, unclean. That's what they do. And people from a distance, in case they miss the voice, they see the body and they s- scramble away. No one gets near the living dead. But now Matthew records this one leper, who would risk everything, including his own life, or whatever life he has, left. And he comes to Jesus. Imagine with me the scene that this living dead, he's squeezing through the crowd in order to kneel face to foot in front of Jesus. Perhaps he survived the crowd because the crowd is too shocked to even realize 
what happened? This leper squeezing through us and kneeling before Jesus. And he cried to Jesus. Look at verse 2 with me. What did he cry out? Look at verse 2. He says, Lord, if you are capable, you can heal me. Is that what the leper was saying? It's not, isn't it? If you are looking at the passage, this is what the leper says. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. It's not if you can, but if you are willing. And it's not just heal me, but to clean me. No, the worst thing about leprosy, it's not just the disease, but what leprosy meant. Leprosy means it signifies death. It signifies uncleanness. It signifies a separation from God. And this leper in calling Jesus Lord, he knew Jesus was one with authority and he has no doubt that Jesus can heal him. His question is, will Jesus heal him? Of which, look at what Jesus replied, verse 3, he reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Now Jesus did not just say the word to make the miracle happen. He kind of touched the leper before he says the word. You know, in the normal circumstances, a person who touched the leper becomes unclean. But in this case, the leper, when he touched Jesus, he become clean. It's like sewage water that touches some magical agent and become clean enough to be um, drank or to be drunk um, by us, becomes purified. So that was what is happening. It's kind of against the flow and against the current that Jesus touched the unclean and unclean becomes clean like Jesus. And then he commands this walking dead, this untouchable, this unclean, this ex-leaper. He says, you go and make the necessary sacrifice before the priest. He kind of probably forgot how to sacrifice, right? He's never done it for, for a long, long time. He says, go and do it because you now must be declared Alive, touchable, clean, and to be included back into the community of God. You know, the touch of Jesus, the Lord of humanity, makes the unclean clean. It is who, this is who Jesus is, and that his offer for those who recognize they're unclean and they need to be clean before coming to God, those who recognize they, by their own effort, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are made clean. Those who come to Jesus and cry out, if you are willing, the reply of Jesus will be, I will, I am willing. In fact, be clean. So as I kind of just start off with this first um, leper who Jesus was speaking I think we need to kind of just pause back and ask ourselves, do we need to be made clean as well? So that we can come into God's presence and enter the kingdom of heaven. Will we come to Jesus to be made clean? Because if we say to him, Lord, if you are willing, he will reply, I am willing. Now Jesus continues his journey and then he enters this place called Capernaum and then a centurion came to him asking for help. He said this to Jesus, look at verse 7. The centurion came and he says, Lord, Lord, you, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Now this second miracle that Jesus was about to do is focusing not on the sick, he's actually focusing on the man who comes to ask for help, the centurion. 
Who's a centurion? A centurion is kind of a professional soldier, a professional Roman officer. His job is to take charge of Roman soldiers. And there are just two things we need to know about centurions. The first is, a centurion is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. Okay, He's not God's people. He's a Gentile. And number two, a centurion's loyalty goes to the emperor Caesar and no one else. Okay, catch this. The centurion is a Gentile and the centurion's allegiance loyalty goes to the emperor as Caesar and no one else. But notice how he begins when he comes to Jesus saying, Lord, now this is very contradictory to what his allegiance is because Caesar is Lord. It's not a Jewish carpenter, not a greenhorn teacher. Yet this centurion speaks to Jesus at the level of superiority that would embarrass Caesar because he comes and he says this verse 8, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Because the centurion recognized the authority of Jesus. He dared not ask Jesus to travel to his home. He knew very well only subordinates go to their superior. It doesn't go the other way. And who is he to disrupt the journey of Jesus? He says, Lord, you don't have to come. Just say the word and he will be clean. Just say the word. And to that, look at what Jesus said, verse 10 onwards. Let me read this for us again. When Jesus heard this from the centurion, he was amazed and he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their place at a feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go! Let it be done as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now what did the centurion believe? Well, he did believe that Jesus can heal the servant. But more than that, he actually believed that Jesus is Lord. Now could he have been pretentious trying to test Jesus? No, Jesus, your Lord. If you... He's not a Jew. He doesn't play the games of pretentious in the Jewish circle. When he came, when he called Jesus Lord, he's risking everything. Can you imagine if Caesar hears his centurion calling a Jewish carpenter a Lord? Off goes his head. But that was what he said. Lord, you can heal. And to that, Jesus replied to the crowd, I've never seen this in God's people. In fact, the Gentiles from the East and the West, they will enter God's kingdom. They will be feasting with your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you, who claims to be descendants of Abraham, you'll be thrown into darkness where there will be gnashing of teeth. So in this, Jesus uh, acceded to the request of the centurion and he made this claim to the crowd that those who enter will be like the centurions. As we kind of pause here and look at the centurion, let us who are calling Jesus contend actually with this question. Will we believe in Jesus enough to call him Lord even when it's against the culture? Will we be willing 
to call Jesus Lord in a world that at best might frown at our decoration, at worst might just snip our head off for doing that. But that is what the centurion did. He is the Lord who cleansed the unclean for his kingdom and he is the Lord who has authority over our lives and over those whose name will be registered into the kingdom of heaven. Will we stick everything to call Jesus Lord and Savior? Now, as the account of Matthew continues, we sadly find that the Jewish followers amongst the crowd, they will start to fall away and start call, stop calling Jesus Lord. In fact, some will turn back and say, let's get rid of him. But as we read on the Matthew and the rest of the gospel, you see amazing how centuries appear. There was a century appear in Matthew 27 as Jesus hung on the cross because of the Jews. The centurion trembled and he said, surely this is the Son of God. As we go on to the book of Acts, while the, while the Jews are trying to go against Christianity or the, the disciple of Jesus, there was another centurion of an Italian regiment by the name Cornelius. He gathers his family and his kind of gentle people and says, let's listen to the gospel of Jesus. And after that, he says, let's get baptized and trust in Jesus as Lord. Do you see what was happening later on? But here, it was presented, will we risk everything and stake everything to follow and call Jesus, Lord. You know, I, here lies the important difference, I think, between this, this whole uh, event that those who simply follow Jesus because of the crowd, they can easily turn against Jesus when the crowd moves. But those who are willing to go against the current and say Jesus is Lord may continue even when the crowd turns and says, get rid of him. Because when the person who is against the crowd says, Jesus is Lord, he was speaking what he knew about this man, and not just about what he has done to benefit them. But we must go on. The third miracle of Jesus in this triplet is the healing of Peter's mother. So look at verse 14 with me. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. No, again, by now we should know, and Matthew wants to know, Jesus doesn't need to touch to heal. But there he touched this um, woman, the elderly, sickly woman. And not only did Jesus reveal himself to be one who can clean and who has authority to bring people into the kingdom of heaven, he reveals the love and care of God that Israel have read about. He revealed his love. You no, know, Jesus, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, she's, she's kind of important to Peter. Well, my mother-in-law is important to me. But in the ancient time, a sickly elderly woman is not very important in the society. But he, she was important to Jesus and she, he touched and healed her. And that actually sets the tone for the rest of the evening where more and more people start coming to him and he healed them to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah that was recorded. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, these words of Isaiah came from a very important passage in the prophetic book oh, with a lot of prophecy, Isaiah 53, known as the Song of the Suffering Servant. Let me just read a snippet of Isaiah 53 that was being quoted uh, by Matthew when Jesus started healing. 
Let me read this for us from Isaiah 53 verse 4. It talks about a suffering servant that is going to, that is going to come. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. The compassion Jesus revealed to the leper, to the Gentile, to the woman, to all who come to him, comes at a cost to Jesus eventually. And these are just a glimpse, what he's been doing now is just a glimpse of the greater compassion and the greater healing that he will execute when his journey ends at the book, at the end of the gospel on the cross. For when he reaches there, he will take up all the pain and all the suffering and all the transgression, all the iniquity, all the sins, all the punishment that should be meant for all the people who have been coming to him. And then he will put it on his own shoulders and lift it up on the cross. That is why Matthew included Isaiah 53, even as Jesus is doing the healing. He's just preparing to show us what he's ultimately here to do at the cross. And as he calls us to follow him so that he may bear our brokenness and our, and give us his perfection, the question is this, that will you and I actually entrust ourselves to him enough to follow him, to stake everything? Will we acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of all humanity or Lord of you, Lord of me, because if we do, we can have confidence that He will bear our uncleanness. He will clean our uncleanness. He will bear our pain and suffering. He will register our names into His kingdom by taking the sin and condemnation we deserve. But now before we start to say, okay, of course I'll call Jesus Lord too soon, Jesus points out the cost of following Him. And I think this is important for us to look at it, that there is a cost for calling Jesus Lord while living in a world that will refuse to recognize His Lordship. So look at what Jesus says when people are considering about following Him. Look at verse 18 to 22. There were these two men. One was a teacher of law. The other was kind of a disciple. The first one, the teacher of law, approached Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus replied, That's great! Finally! Someone of some status. No, that wasn't what Jesus said. Jesus said in verse 20, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's, that's where it ended about this, this guy who wanted to follow him. It was unclear if he eventually did follow Jesus, but Jesus' point was clear. He's not heading to a comfortable palace to wear a golden crown because his journey is heading towards the place of the skull, Golgotha, to wear the crown of thorns. And that's the journey he's taking. If you're following me, that is the way and not to the palace. For all who want to follow him, be prepared to face the same journey. He's not interested to have people kind of following him, you not know, tagging along because of excitement or benefits. He's interested in having followers who will take his path. Meanwhile, another disciple came along asking that Jesus, his Lord, uh, that he could bury his father first. And Jesus told him, Follow me 
and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this this scene, a lot of people try to explain what it means. You know, maybe the man's dad is not dead yet, because if his dad is dead, you need to bury him the same day. He wouldn't be walking around with the crowd. Or perhaps it's true that he's dead. Or perhaps he's waiting for his dad to die. But either way, Jesus' point is just as clear. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, the priority is me. In fact, if you want to follow me, the time is now. This is what Jesus says. Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. So for all who want to be true disciples of Jesus, to follow Jesus, we must take heed of the cost to follow Jesus and the need to follow him right now. Now one of the greatest disservice we can do to each other in kind of a Christian context is to kind of give a false crowd-like assurance that actually you're alright, I'm alright, we're all we're all going to be alright. No, perhaps we create more religious kind of rituals. We we have communion and we have songs we serve. We kind of feel like ah, you're alright and I'm alright. But you say it's not alright. This is not the kind of security you have. There was a, a famous pastor theologian by the name Jonathan Edwards, which is where my son's name came from. He was in the 18th century. He was considered one of the greatest theologians of his time. He after ministering to his church for 23 years, the church fired him for all the other reasons, but more so that he wants to bring in church discipline. And he wants to say that, you know what? Communion should only be taken by people who actually profess Jesus as Lord. For that, they fired him. He says, how can you restrict us from having communion? What he's saying is, I don't want you to have the false security where I'm the, the shepherd on God's behalf. And at the end, you're in hell because I'm not doing my job. But that's not what the world wants. The world wants to follow Jesus in the way that we want and not in the way that Jesus says. So as we listen to who Jesus is and we say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I think we need to know how to follow him. Now the question for those of us who are saying, okay, I'm committed to follow Jesus, then one of the most important things next is actually to grow in our knowledge of Jesus, of who Jesus is. Because the more we recognize who Jesus is, the more we are able to face the challenges of life. Let me say that again. The more we start to the more we understand who Jesus is, the more we'll be able to face the challenges in life, as we'll soon see. Because after Jesus finished speaking, he got on the boat, his disciples kind of followed him. Now, try to imagine this scene with me a little bit. You know, as the teacher sat in the stern of the boat, he kind of was tired, doing too much healing, he fell asleep, and the wind started to pick up speed in the dark. You no know, ripples became waves. The horizon or the shoreline started to kind of disappear. The boat started to rock. An uneasy feeling was coming upon all the disciples, especially those people of the land. If you have disciples who are tax collectors, like, what is happening here? And then those who are fishermen, he has at least four fishermen, right? Peter, James, John, and uh, Andrew. They're kind of like, let's get to work, guys. Pour the water out. And they scoop out the water. They're trying to keep the boat afloat. But the almost perfect storm is not giving way. But what do we know? 
this furious storm was beyond what the disciples could handle and they were helpless. Now, when the fishermen started to speak about imminent drowning, that's not what you want to hear if you're a kind of tax collector. To hear kind of those lifetime grandfather and dad are all fishermen and say, I think we're going to drown. They say, oh dear. They were terrified because that was what is happening. So frightened and the brink of being drowned, they kind of woke Jesus up saying, Lord, save us, we are going to drown. At this, Jesus replied, look at verse 27. Oh, sorry, I fell asleep. No, he said, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. You know, the disciples were just starting to recognize, you no, know, Jesus perhaps is the Lord of humanity. But what they just witnessed at this point was the Lord who has control even over nature. That when Jesus kind of rebuked the winds and the waves, they were kind of like their puppy or their servant. They kind of, kind of kept quiet. The whole thing went down and like, what is happening? Well, the storm calmed, the, the, the storm in the sea calmed, you know, the storm in their hearts started to rage. But they know that this man that they're looking has just crossed a line that no one else has. They knew that there was only one who deals with nature. Let me read to you what the Jews would know about nature. Let me just read from Psalms 107 for us. Let me read this for us. Then they cried out to the Lord, which is God, in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distresses he caused the storm to be stilled, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. These were the words in Psalms speaking about God, the God that they believe in, who calms the storm and to calm the waves. But here on this little boat, as they look at this man sitting across them, they look at each other and they look at him again, and they had to say this, What kind of a man is this. Even the winds and the storm, and even the winds and the waves obeyed him. No, perhaps Jesus rebuked them about their little faith was not so much on just how they feel emotionally, but of their understanding of who they actually recognize Jesus as. When they called Jesus Lord, what did they actually mean by that? The man did not say, oh, we should have greater faith. But they said, who is that? You know, some have called him rabbi, good teachers. Others acknowledge him as a doctor, perhaps a good prophet with miraculous skills. But Jesus was more than that. And if God is the only one who can calm storms and waves and to hush it, then what is this man they are following? And they are confronted with this question that they had thought they knew. But do they really know who Jesus is? And friends, as we follow Jesus, do we really think carefully who we are actually following? You know, some people have looked at Christianity and say, ah, this is kind of a blind faith. We follow not with a blind faith, but with a knowing faith. That is what Christian faith is about. We know who we are actually following. In fact, this question is something we need to ask. Do we really know who we are dealing with? Do we really know who we are praying to? Do we really know who we are trusting our lives to and follow Him? Because if we do, you know what? Our faith 
will prevent us from saying, God, why are you not able to help me? Because if we really do know Jesus for who he is, we will not be in times of difficulty, God, where are you when I'm in the midst of difficulty and storm? Because our faith, built on the knowledge of who Jesus is, will not allow us to contend with it for very long. We see that in Psalms, when the psalmist cries out, his conclusion always ends back in, but then, I know you are God. Is this the way we respond to Jesus? As we kind of pause here and reflect on this, I think it's good for us to kind of reflect on what we think we know about Jesus and how our lives are responding to what we know. And let our faith be built not on emotions, but let our faith be built on what we know of the reality of Jesus. Do we know the Lordship of Jesus? Will we count our cost and willingly follow Him? No, but before we end today, there's just one more aspect of Jesus that Matthew has for us, at least in chapter 8, that will stretch our understanding further and the Lordship of Jesus greater. And if you're a Christian, you will build our faith stronger. So look at the last few verses with me from verse 28 to 34. Now, as the disciples kind of sat uneasily in their little boat in the calm lake, the boat kind of landed on the shore of Gadarenes, and a new storm begins to approach. Look at verse 28-29. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass their way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before... The appointed time. Now, while the disciples were obviously there, you realize that they are not mentioned here. They kind of, one storm is a bit too much for them. Uh, probably they decide that they should just stick in the boat while Jesus just go out and confront uh, this demon-possessed man. And this demon-possessed man, they were so violent that no one could get near and none could actually pass their way without being harmed. But they would rush towards Jesus as, as if he were actually compelled to do so. They rushed to Jesus, and then the words they spoke reveal further the kind of Lord Jesus is. Look at verse 29 with me, and they said, Jesus was the Son of God. Surely that kind of clarified the question the disciples were asking the book, Who is this man? And the demon-possessed man came and said, This is the Son of God. Well, as they said this, what they did not say about Jesus, the disciples dare not say about Jesus, this demon-possessed man just shouted it out. But listen to the second revelation that he has about Jesus. Look at what the demon-possessed man said. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? No, Jesus was not only the Lord over the spiritual realm, the disciples had already seen him cast out demons. The demons recognize that Jesus is the one who sets the appointed time where he will return to judge evil. The time will come where he will start to judge evil. And their cry is, no, they are crying foul, Jesus, are you cutting short and coming to judge us before that time? But they knew that Jesus was the one who will reveal the world's evil and he will bring judgment on them. 
And also knowing Jesus as Lord of humanity, we have seen Jesus as Lord of nature, Jesus of the spiritual realm. He's the one who has control over physical, spiritual, and natural. Surely the world will kind of follow Jesus, isn't it? If this is so powerful. But does the world follow him in Jesus' time? Does the world in our time follow Jesus? The the horrific answer is actually no, isn't it? Because our world, including Jesus' time, even if this is who Jesus is, they will not follow. Look at how the account unfolds. And the reason is this. The demons, they pleaded to be driven into nearby herds of pigs. Jesus allowed them. They came out, they went to the pigs. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake. They died in the water. And then our chapter ends with these two verses. Those tending the pigs, they ran off, went into town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Then the whole town went to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. The whole town came to meet Jesus. They don't really care whether the demon-possessed men are saint and safe and free. They don't really care whether Jesus has power, or what kind of power, or what kind of person he is. But they really care that their financial security were kind of disrupted. That this Jesus did not come to give wealth, they have caused them to be poor. And so they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. But they should have learned from the once demon-possessed man that the Lord of the realms will return to judge evil. Even as they kick Jesus out, one day he will return, but not in the same way. So as we kind of round up chapter 8 for us today, I want to come back to our original question that we started is, who will you and I follow and entrust our lives to? The call of Jesus in verse 22 continues today. He says, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. The day will come that we will follow the rest of the dead. But the day is not yet here. The day is here where we can follow Him and follow Him now. Because the Lord of nature, humanity, spiritual world, the Lord of the whole realm, He has been willing to come as the suffering servant to offer to us the chance to follow Him and for Him to bear all that we are so that we can enter the kingdom of heaven when He returns and not be judged among the evil. So will we follow, will we entrust ourselves to Jesus? Will the knowledge of who Jesus is actually be the driving force of our faith and not just our emotions? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.